I signed no signatures after the last service, so that tells you that everyone listens to me and not Mark, which is great. Uh, my name is Levi Friesen. I don't presume to be a familiar face to all of you. Uh, the Immerse program has me spending time in a couple of specific ministry areas. Uh, I serve most weekends at the Central Abbotsford campus, which uh, meets on Saturday nights. I'm also involved in our men's Bible study on Wednesday nights, where you might recognize me if you are uh, part of the tens of people who cycle through our Sunday night service. That's the, the weekly service us Immerse students have that we run and we get our opportunities to teach and lead. But this weekend, we get all of those opportunities in front of more than tens of people. So this is exciting for me to be here. Uh, we are between sermon series. We finished Advent, obviously, with Christmas time, and we're not yet returning to our John series. We've been given our choice of text for the week, and so I chose 1 Corinthians 13 for reasons which I will explain as we get into it. But I'll have the passages up on the screen, but you can feel free to turn there if you have a Bible with you as well. A number of years ago, I uh, suffered a torn ACL. It's a significant injury, requires an invasive surgery, and then really long rehabilitation. In the first couple of weeks, you're not allowed to walk. You're forced to basically just be bedridden. Sit, elevate your leg, get ice on it, do the normal kinds of recovery things. But in theory, your rehabilitation process begins right away. You start with very uh, I'll call them frustrating exercises because they're things like, as you're sitting there, tense your quad muscle 10 times, do three sets of this. Or, or another one was stretch your calf for 10 seconds three times. There's a significant difference between the kinds of, of exercises I was doing before my injury and the kinds of exercises I was limited to in the early stages of rehabilitation. Uh, to summarize that time, I would have called it frustratingly futile because there's a huge difference between being able to, to run and jump and play soccer and do the things that I love to do and these very small things which I was forced to return to. Because we measure, as it were, health physically by those bigger, more remarkable things. You wouldn't say that my leg is healthy because I can tense my quad muscle a couple of times. You would see me walk without crutches and say, that, that is a, a healthier knee again. We, we are always looking to the bigger and the more remarkable to define health and growth for ourselves. And I don't think that's only true of ourselves physically. I think that's very much true of, of myself and many of us spiritually. If I were to ask you, what would it look like for you to grow as a Christian this month, this year, the next decade? it's very likely you and I would have a very similar list of things that we would say, I want to read my Bible every year, perhaps, or at least read my Bible every day. I want to spend 10 minutes a day in prayer. I want to intentionally be part of a Christian community group, a group of Christian friends. I want to attend church more regularly, maybe, than I do now. We turn to all these kind of external markers physical, tangible things that we can say and see, these are what it looks like to grow as a Christian. This is what is the Christian life is really all about. And in that way, we are not dissimilar from the church at Corinth that Paul wrote his letter to. They were a church enamored by the outward, public, spectacular signs that they saw as being the marks of a true, growing, healthy Christian. But Paul takes this opportunity in chapter 13 to refocus them on something far more basic, 
where if you don't have this thing, you don't have anything. His message to them is simple and straightforward as he takes them back to the basics. They are to live a life of love. That's his message in 1 Corinthians 13. That's the the point I'll be making this morning, that we as Christians are to live a life of love. And so I'll be following Paul's line of reasoning through chapter 13. He gives a, a reason and then offers an explanation and then closes with another reason. So that's what I'm going to do as well. He's going to say, first, love avoids a wasted life. He's going to explain love is a way of life. And third, love is for eternal life. The second point is the longest because it's the explanation bookended by the reasons. So we're going to begin by looking at how living a life of love avoids a wasted life. We're going to read starting with uh, the end of verse 31 from chapter 12 until 13 chapter, verse 3. Paul says, I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, And if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I included the end of of verse 31 from the previous chapter because Paul is setting up a bit of a, a contrast. So in chapter 12, what he's been dealing with is the way in which the Corinthian church was misusing spiritual gifts. So he's been teaching them how to use them rightly, what they're for, how to use them. And then he turns and says, even though... I've told you the correct things about spiritual gifts. You can get spiritual gifts nailed perfectly. But if you don't have this, it actually doesn't matter at all. And he goes about this by by listing a number of things that you and I look at and think, those are marks of what would be a remarkable Christian to many of us. What what does he talk about? He talks about those who speak in the tongues of, of men and of angels, those who speak languages they don't normally know because the Spirit empowers them to. He says, if you can do that, but you don't have love, it's just noise. Then he turns and says, if you can fathom all these mysteries and all this knowledge about God, or or you have faith so strong you can move mountains, which was the, the way in which you talked about a very strong faith. It's the kind of faith through which God works dramatically. But you have not love, you have nothing. And then he removes it from the, the idea of just being about spiritual gifts, and he grounds it in some very tangible things that you and I might even aspire to live out in our daily Christian lives. If you give away everything that you have, which we tell stories sometimes from the pulpit about people who have done this very thing, we hold them up as incredible models for us. Or people who, who are willing to have their bodies be burned, to suffer for Christ. Paul says, if you do these things without love, you have nothing still. And so this passage was one that that jumped out to me as I studied it these past couple of weeks, because I'm in a position where basically the, the church pays me to seek out knowledge, to study deeply and carefully, to grow 
so that I'm ready to pastor people. But, but Paul wrote this letter to just a very regular church full of very normal Christians. And so for all of us who intend to continue to grow as we follow Jesus, as all of us should desire, this passage jumps as a bright, flashing warning sign to us. And basically, the the warning for us is that there is nothing that can replace love in a Christian's life. There's no amount of consistent church attendance, no amount of Bible reading plans, no amount of time spent in prayer, no amount of caring for people in their personal crises, no amount of generosity, no amount of serving that can replace love at the heart of the Christian life. So as I studied this text this week, I realized what it was saying to me was Levi, you can finish the whole Immerse program, walk away with a master's degree and four years of ministry experience, but if you have not love, you have accomplished nothing of lasting significance. And that's the message true for me, true for all of us. This is what is at stake for us. Love is essential to the Christian life, and so a life lived without it, Paul says, is a wasted life. So if I were to ask you, It's not just a New Year's question. We're resolving people in general. But at the time where people tend to make resolutions, and I were to ask you, what are are the things that you've looked at and said, I want to grow in this this year? Maybe it's things I've mentioned before. More consistent spiritual discipline habits, reading your Bible, praying. Maybe it's other good things. Paul isn't saying any of this stuff is bad or that you shouldn't do it. But he's saying if this is all that you do apart from love, It has no lasting value. So where is love on your resolution list this year? Where does it stand in your normal thinking about what it looks like to grow as a Christian? This is what's at stake. A life wasted is a life lived without love. And so it raises a natural next question. How do I know if this is what's at stake? How do I know where I stand? How do I know if I'm living a life of love or not? And Paul gets into a longer explanation here on what it actually looks like. He talks about love as a way of life. And he does it in verses 4 to 7, which is perhaps the part of the chapter you're the most familiar with. So let's read it, and we'll think about it together as we analyze our own love and our own life. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. See, when we we think about love today, we think of something squishy and ethereal, right? Love is a feeling that I chase after and, and hope that it finds me. But Paul's description of love deviates from our general understanding of love pretty significantly. He lays out for us what is a very tangible description of what a life of love actually looks like. He he begins in verse 4 by talking about what love is. Love is patient and kind. And what Paul does by beginning in this way is he identifies the characteristics of love with the very character of God. And I say that because Paul is mirroring language that comes to us in Exodus 34, where Moses has asked God if he can see his glory, if he can see his face. 
a remarkable request. And here's the answer God gives to Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. And then this phrase in particular, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Slow to anger is, is another way of saying patience. God is not quickly angered. He bears with people, though he has the right to be angry with them at times. And the word kind in, in our day-to-day use is a, is a bit of a weak word. To talk about God's steadfast love and faithfulness is a much better picture of what it looks like to be kind as Paul intends it. So, so what Paul has done is he has said, this is what the character of God is like. When you ask God, what are you like? And he tells you patient and kind. That is how you know what love is. Love is patient and kind. And it's not just that God said this, but God demonstrated it through the whole story as he walked with the nation of Israel from this story onwards. God had freed them out of Egyptian slavery. Egypt was the biggest empire of the day. God saved them by his own power so that they would be his people. They would worship and follow him, and he would be their God who lavished blessings upon them. Israel proved to not be that great of a nation. As soon as God brought them out of Egypt, they started grumbling. First, they grumbled on the way out. God, are you bringing us out here so that the Egyptians will come and kill us in the desert? Then they grumbled about the food. God, we had a buffet that we left behind in Egypt, and now we've got crackers and water. They complained about the water. God, did you bring us out here so we would die of thirst? They complained about the other nations. God, did you bring us away from Egypt so that somebody else would kill us in the desert? Time and time again, they tested God's patience. And if God wasn't a patient and kind God of love in the Old Testament, the Old Testament would be a much shorter story, which would help Bible reading plans. But but even when God was bringing judgment upon them, he only did so after warning, after warning, after warning. Always inviting Israel to repent and turn away from the evil that they were doing to find in him forgiveness and blessing anew. God was a God of patience and kindness from creation onwards. That is the only God we have ever known and ever seen in the scriptures. And so Paul is saying that is what love looks like. Love is patient and kind. There's a story Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher in England a couple hundred years ago, told about Archbishop Leighton from the Church of Scotland. He lived in a a bit of a rural area. He had one guy who worked in his house, a fellow named John. John was very forgetful. One day, John, presumably he had the freedom to do this, decided he was going to go fishing for the day. So he left early in the morning, locked the door behind him, and and went on his way for the rest of the day. The only problem was... uh, The houses didn't have any kind of smart locks. In fact, usually they only had one key. So by locking the door behind him and leaving with the key, he had trapped Archbishop Layton in his own house for the duration of the day. I don't know if you've ever been locked in somewhere you don't want to be before, uh, but what are the kinds of things that you think about you're going to say to the person who got you stuck? The only thing I'd be writing that day is the speech I'm going to deliver when he unlocks the door before he even has a chance to step inside. It's annoying. I don't even know how nice Scotland was outside that time of year, but it was probably nicer than inside where you don't have electricity and heat, all these kinds of things that we take for granted. It was not going to be a very nice day for Archbishop Layton. So what did he say 
when John came home after a long day of enjoying himself out on the lake, serenely unaware of the problem that he had left behind. Well, here's, here's what he said. Uh, John, if you go out for another day of fishing, kindly leave me the key. Evidently, he, he had spent the day happy, studying away, enjoying time in prayer, not fostering in his heart the kind of bitterness that I would expect to be fostered in my heart had someone done that to me. That, that is what grows out of a heart of love. Yes, John had been forgetful before. And he made a mistake that would have been real frustrating most of the time. And yet this is the response that comes about. See, see some of us have people in our lives whom we find hard to be patient and kind towards. I say some of us, I mean all of us. Perhaps you have a child or a grandchild who's living in all kinds of ways you know they should not be living. It's not good for them. It's not good for the people around them. Maybe you're particularly frustrated with how one of your parents or both of your parents are living, and you know they're doing things which are not good, not caring, not loving, not considering other people. Maybe you have a boss or a coworker who the first thing that they say to you every time you see them at work gets on your nerves, and you know they're doing and saying these kinds of things on purpose, making your job harder than it really needs to be. How would those people say you treat them? Are patience and kindness high on their list? Because a heart of love produces patience and kindness, because that's what love is, and we know that because that's what God is. So this is how Paul begins his definition of love, but then he turns to a longer section where he talks about these many things which love isn't. And Paul here, just to be clear, isn't intending to be exhaustive. He's not saying this is all that can be said about love. He's showing us some generally true things that we ought to, that we ought to consider. So what does he say? Uh, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. There, there's a thread which ties all these things. Love is not together. Love is ultimately not self-centered. Love does not primarily seek its own good in a relationship. Love is primarily concerned with the good of the other. Right, just think about some of these items. What, what is envy? It's because you want for yourself what someone else has. What is boasting? It's that you want yourself to appear better than others. Paul is saying that love does not insist on always benefiting itself at the expense of those around you. So these are good things for us to consider. Are you someone who boasts? When someone has a conversation with you, do they know that the conversation is always going to turn to something great about you, something remarkable that, that you've done, some big and grand experience that you've had? Are you competitive? When someone talks about something good in their life, do you always bring up something better in your life? When people have a conversation with you, do they know in the back of their mind that there's always the chance you're going to bring up some mistake they've made, maybe a wrong done against you, that even though they've tried to correct, you can't move on from? Do you insist, instead of getting your own way, that other people get their way? Are you annoyed easily? Do you take things personally? All of these are indicators, which is, is true of all of us, 
that we tend to be self-centered people. And that is the kind of thing which keeps us from being able to live a life of love. These are questions worth asking people who know you. Asking people who interact with you. If you want to know whether you're at danger of living a wasted life because you, in fact, have not been living a loving life, it's worth asking people who see you to say, hey, have I been living in these kinds of ways? And while the first two aspects of the list deal with the way that we are received by other people, Paul then turns his definition of love and says, love adheres to a certain kind of standard. Love isn't all about what other people perceive of you. There, there is something objective about love. And he says it like this, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love is not simply an affirmation of all things, but instead is always desiring what is good and right for people because that is for their good. Love means desiring the best for people, and what is best for people is what God has laid out for them. This is the place where Paul's definition of love moves completely against the current of our present day, where, where people will say, not only do you not, but you cannot love me unless you are affirming of me and everything I believe and everything that I stand for. And Paul simply says, that is not the case. Love is not like that. Love wants what is best for people. Love always demands that you desire the best for people. And that means that you desire people to live in right relationship with God as he has defined it. So yes, love is patient and kind, love is not self-centered, and love abides by a standard. And so it's great that Paul began his definition by talking about the character of God, because God walked this tension out in a way that you and I struggle to. See, God was patient and kind with Israel, extremely patient with Israel, and yet never rejoiced or reveled or celebrated any of their wrongdoing. His patience extended and extended and extended. He never turned his back on the promises that he made. He stayed with them. He continued to care for them and at the same time did not allow wrongdoing to be left unaddressed. That is the dynamic that love calls us to walk out. Love loves truth. I'm going to say something uh, true about myself in the past tense you should know that it's also tends to still be true of myself in the present. Uh, I like to push people's buttons. Uh, Mark sat near me in the office for a while. He knows this to be true of himself personally and anyone in the vicinity. Uh, I perpetually play the role of younger brother no matter who I am with. I like to think that I'm pretty clever and funny about it. Lots of people would probably disagree with me. Lord willing, that will be less true of me the longer my life goes on. But I remember a conversation I distinctly had with someone before I started high school. I was doing exactly this kind of thing. And what they turned and said to me was, uh, Levi, you're going to say the wrong thing to the wrong person when you've started at your new high school, and you're going to get punched in the mouth. And that was basically how it was delivered, right? It was patient and kind and all of these things. But I've thought about it since then. Why wouldn't they have just said nothing? That's likely a lesson I would have learned on my own at some point. 
<laughs> but it was out of their love for me that they didn't want me to have to walk through all of the difficulty that my wrongdoing was going to create for me. Out of love, they wanted to tell me the truth so that I would live by the truth and avoid all of the difficulty that I was gonna bring upon myself. And I didn't get punched in the mouth in high school. But it's an evidence, an evidence of love that they wanted to tell me the truth when it would have been easier to simply say nothing. Now they didn't tell me the truth every day. That wasn't a warning that I got repeatedly, that was stated once. And it resonated. So there's always a way that patience and kindness will cause us to work this kind of thing out. But love abides by a standard. And then Paul finishes his description in verse 7. Notice this repetition. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. The point is that love continues. Even when it would be easier to no longer love that person. Patience and kindness go on even when we are stretched to a breaking point. Other-centeredness continues to take precedent over the self even when we feel like we really deserve to be a little bit self-centered. Love continues to abide and love in the truth even when it would be easier to simply let things go and act like it isn't a problem. Love continues even when it gets difficult. This is Paul's summary of what? Love is. And as I was studying the passage this week, as I've preached it a number of times this weekend already, what I'm struck by is that Paul, when he's setting up this very thing that he calls essential and basic to the Christian life, is that he doesn't set the hurdle very low. He says, this is, this is what you need to not waste your life, and then he sets a high jump bar. And I don't know if you felt that as you've read this text, but I know that there are times where I struggle to be patient and kind. And this command isn't just be patient and kind to those who are patient and kind to you, it's just be patient and kind. Do not put yourself above other people. Love the truth, continue on in love. It is a tremendously high calling that Paul has set out as this basic Christian thing. And there are two dangers ahead of us as we consider what Paul calls us to. The first will come if, if we succeed at doing this in our own strength, right? If we are resolving kinds of people, I'm gonna make myself a loving person, I'm gonna be patient this week. If you have a week where you are more patient than you'd normally be, what is the immediate temptation presented before you? Look how great I am. To turn to boasting and arrogance, which is ironically completely undercutting of love in the first place. So one danger is that you might succeed at this for a while in your own strength, but, but the other danger, perhaps the more prevalent one, is that you will fail. You will look back at all the ways in which you have failed to love, you will look ahead and see all of the ways that you know you will fail to love, and you'll be put into a pit of despair that you cannot get out of, because ultimately what Paul is calling us to do is not something we can do on our own strength. And the scriptures, thankfully, tell us that that has never been the point of the Christian life, to just grit your teeth and clench your fists and make yourself love. But love has always been formed in God's people as they get to know the God who is love. 1 John 4, verses 7 to 11 connect the dots for us really nicely. It's a little bit kind of tightly worded, so I'll read it slowly and explain. 
1 John 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Right? There's a connection here. As you know God, who is love, you will love. But instead of leaving it there, John turns our attention to manifestations, examples, displays of God's love to us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God sent Jesus so that we might live. In this, we see, in this, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Not that we loved God and so deserved his love in response, but God loved us and sent Jesus so that our sins might be forgiven. Beloved, if God loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. See, we grow into this way of loving life that God calls us into by knowing God who is the God of all love. And not just knowing things about him, but but knowing that he has been loving to me. See, as I see that God has been patient and kind to me, undeserving as I am, in sending Christ to, to pay a penalty that I deserved, and bearing with me though I struggle along the way, I can look at people who are hard to be patient and kind to and see myself in them. If this is how God has treated me, undeserving as I am, God, help me to treat them as you have treated me. As we see that the self-sacrifice of God, as we think about over Christmas time, all of the many things Christ gave up to take on human flesh, we will, we will see that we have no grounds to be self-centered because look what God, who deserves all glory, gave up to save you. God, help me to be other focused. As we see in Christ's death that he both shows us, manifests God's love to us, but also is very clear about what sin is. He tells the truth about sin in his death. This is what sin requires. We have laid out for us a Savior who both loves us and does not rejoice in wrongdoing. God, help me not rejoice in wrongdoing, but love the truth. And as we see God bear with us, being patient with us, though we stumble and struggle and do not grow even as we want to grow, let alone towards the image that God intends to grow us into, we can continue to love even when it would be easier not to. This is what God has done for all who come to faith in Christ. And as you get to know Him and see that this is what He has done for you, He will grow you into being a loving person where you live a way of life that is love. So get to know God. Do the kinds of Christian things that you're already doing. Come to church. Sing songs of worship. Read the scriptures. Pray. Be part of a Christian community. Be generous. Serve. And as you do all of these things, ask that God would show you who he is that he would impress upon you the truth of his love so that you will be a person who lives a way of life that is love.
So love avoids a wasted life. Love is a way of life. And Paul finishes with another glorious reason we ought to live a life of love. Love is for eternal life. We'll read verses 8 to 13. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. See, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So Paul briefly makes a a return to this idea of spiritual gifts, right? And he says, basically, spiritual gifts perform a necessary but temporary function. You need them when you don't yet know all you need to know. They're like training wheels on a bike. The point of training wheels isn't to keep them forever, but you'll know watching maybe home videos when kids are learning to ride a bike, they just bounce from one training wheel to the other as they learn to ride. And eventually they're riding smoothly enough, they don't even rely on them any longer. So they go away when the goal has been met. So Paul isn't returning to some explanation of spiritual gifts, but instead saying, even these really important and remarkable things are are temporary. And they are temporary until something comes to pass. He says, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. He also talks about the perfect coming and replacing the partial. What he's saying is when God brings all things to completion, when God finishes the work that he has begun, we will know God face to face. We won't need the extra helps. We will know God who is, as we saw, the God of all love. He talks about a mirror dimly. Uh, It's an image that's a little bit lost on us. Because when you look in a mirror, it's a pretty crystal clear reflection of of what is being projected into the mirror. But in Paul's day, mirrors were made out of uh, polished metal. So yes, you'd get a reflection, but but it was not a great one. A a better illustration for us is is glasses wearers. If you take off your glasses while we're singing the worship songs, maybe you can tell, like I can tell, there are, yes, words on the screen, but I cannot read them. I need the help until I see clearly. This is what Paul is saying. There will come a day where we will see the God of all love clearly. We will see him face to face is the language Paul uses. And this is biblically remarkable language because very few people in the history of God's people have ever been said to see God face to face. Deuteronomy ends with with this statement about Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. Why? He was one whom the Lord knew face to face. It was a limited, an exclusive, a restricted privilege for a select few to see God face to face. And what Paul is saying is we will all get to enjoy that experience when the perfect comes. We will see the God of all love face to face. And when we see him, We will know him even as he knows us, and God knows us fully. This is what we are looking forward to, seeing the God of love 
face to face. And when that happens, even other really important and big Christian things will be done away with. Paul uses a famous triad of his, faith, hope, and love, to talk about three things which are essential to the Christian life. And he says, even among these three, love stands alone. So I'll explain based on what definitions of of faith and hope are. Faith is belief or trust that God is who he says he is and he will do what he has said he will do, though we do not yet see it. What Paul is saying is when the perfect comes, that which we had to trust in God for, we will see with our own eyes. So when the perfect comes, faith will lead into sight. Similar with hope. Hope talks about anticipation, waiting, longing for what is to come. When the perfect comes, you will not be longing or waiting for any more full experience to come than what you have immediately in front of you. Our hope will give way to our enjoyment of these things. But love, love is not like those things. Love is what eternal life is all about. When we know God and see him face to face and we behold that he is the God of love and we are the recipients of his love, that's not something you graduate from in heaven. That's what heaven's all about. Living in a loving, eternal relationship with the Father because the Son has made it possible for you to receive that gift. So when Paul appeals to us to live lives of love now, he does so knowing that what he is inviting you into in the present is also what you anticipate in the future. Paul says you can live eternal life today when you live a God-strengthened life of love. This is why a life lived in love is never a wasted life, because it's a way of life which leads into eternal life. See, Paul isn't burdening you with something heavy and hard and lacking reward. He is inviting you into life that is really life. So as you think about the kinds of things this text calls us to do, to be patient and kind, to be other-focused, to be committed to the truth, to continue loving even when it would be easier to stop. Remember that, that this is the kind of life you will enjoy with God forever. And he invites you to live in it now. So go to him. Ask that he show you who he is and he strengthen you to live this life of love. I'm going to pray for us to that end, and then we're going to sing a couple more songs together. So let's pray. Father, we're thankful for even uh, familiar texts in your scriptures, because in them you say remarkable and glorious things to us. So Father, help us not take for granted the tremendous love that you have shown us in Jesus. Help us to, to reflect upon those things. We ask that you would implant those things in our hearts and in our minds, so that they are so deeply within us that we can do nothing but respond in a life of love like your life of love, which you've invited us into. Father, encourage us with these reminders and make us into people who love. We pray these things in Jesus' name, by the Spirit's power. Amen. You can stand and we'll sing together.